0: Elizabeth awoke the next morning to the same thoughts and meditations which had at length closed her eyes. She could not yet recover from the surprise of what had happened. I'm Ellen. And I'm Harriet, and this is Reading Jane Austen. And this week,
1: we're also joined by my partner, Michael. Hello. Michael's going to be talking to us about the militia and the military in Jane Austen's time, and he might also be contributing to some of the discussion
0: before then. We're looking at chapters 35 to 41 of Pride and Prejudice. Can you summarise these chapters in a sentence? Because I didn't get round to doing it this week. Okay. Mr Darcy gives Elizabeth a letter
1: defending himself against Elizabeth's two accusations, which leaves her feeling that she has been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd about Wickham, and she also can't deny the justice of his view of Jane. So when she returns to Longbourn, she's happy to learn that Wickham will be leaving when the regiment goes to Brighton, But disappointed and sorry when Mr Bennett lets Lydia accept her particular friend Mrs Forster's invitation to accompany them. So I've counted that up there's two ands and there's five bits from Jane Austen so that's plus three. One of the things I noticed with chapters 35 and 36 Darcy's letter and then Elizabeth's response to it is that they feel like they're the longest chapters in the book but actually they aren't. In my Penguin edition the chapter with the letter is seven pages and then her response is only six pages. There are plenty of others about the same length and there are three that are substantially longer. The Netherfield Ball is 14 pages. The Visit to Pemberley is 13 pages. And then The Return to Longbourn is 11 pages. We've also got a couple that are somewhat longer. But I think the reason these feel so much longer is they're packed full of information, particularly the letter. There's not much humour in this one. It's very serious. There's no dialogue or anything. It's just the letter. So it's really solid stuff. And yet... Even though it's such solid stuff, it's completely gripping. You don't feel this is so much exposition that I'd really
0: rather just skim over. Well, partly, of course, you're getting Elizabeth's response, which becomes very interesting as she argues it back and forward and you're following her train of thought and her argument. Did you count the words or only the pages? Well, I only counted the pages. I didn't count the words. Yeah, because, the I mean, after all, there's not much conversation. There's not much in the way of paragraph breaks, probably. Yeah, Mm. yeah. But, of course, the the other thing is they're they're such
1: a key turning point of the novel. And also, they're actually pretty much at the centre of it.
0: Yes, and in a sense, of course, now I'm thinking this is the cusp where Elizabeth's starts to abandon her prejudice Mm. and register that she's been attracted by Darcy sort of all along.
1: Well, no, I don't think at this point she registers that she's been attracted by Darcy. There's a bit in the next chapter, after she's been thinking about the letter a lot, in fact, she's in a fair way to knowing it by heart. When she remembered the style of his address, she was still full of indignation. But when she considered how unjustly she had condemned and upbraided him, her anger was turned against herself and his disappointed feelings became the object of compassion. His attachment excited gratitude, his general character respect, but she could not approve him, nor could she for a moment repent of her refusal or feel the slightest inclination ever to see him again. Although she does say, until this moment I never knew myself, I don't think
0: really at this moment we're seeing her recognise that she's always been attracted to him. So she really does start to fall in love with him when she saw his beautiful gardens at Pemberley. (laughs) I think it probably go it's been carrying
1: on until that time. <laughs> but one more thing about the letter is the length of the letter. He must have really tiny handwriting because it's two pages. It doesn't say it's crossed. So two pages written either side and then the envelope. So that's five pages of handwritten text for something that goes for nearly seven pages in <laughs> my copy of the book. <laughs>
2: Perhaps she had very small handwriting.
0: Oh, she did, we know that. <laughs> Perhaps they were great big letters. Perhaps he was using sort of commercial paper. <laughs> At the same time as I was reading this this section, I was also reading Claire Tomlin's account of Pride and Prejudice in her biography of Jane Austen, and she made this particular point that she felt that this, Darcy's description of, of Wickham's wickedness Seemed grafted on From a different sort of novel altogether And so I looked and the, Darcy talks about The vicious propensities The want of principle Which he was careful to guard From the knowledge of his best friend And saying his life was a life of idleness and dissipation As though, you know, he's talking about Some sort of rake's progress mm. And I'm just trying to think The real thing that Wickham did wrong Was he spent too much money he enjoyed the pleasures of of young men. He didn't become an alcoholic, and as far as we know, he didn't make a lot of girls pregnant. Well, except much later in the book, when suddenly
1: Merriton, who'd been all gay Wickham after Lydia's elopement, suddenly all these stories come through about the tradesman's daughters he's so-called seduced, and
0: and the fact that he's got gambling debts. Yes, but I mean, what I'm just thinking though is. It would have been nice to have a bit more of a picture. I mean, admittedly, all I do when I, I read that is I think of that bit of the rake's progress where the rake is lying back in a chair with his leg up in the air. <laughs> well, no, could, can you tell me if you can really think of anything that was probably much worse than Bingley did? We're well, certainly was... not meant to think that Bingley and Darcy, they're probably not virgins, but they're equally probably not out seducing tradesmen's daughters. no. Jane is horrified to discover that he's a gamester. No, but I'm just sort of thinking that the worst thing Wickham does is indulge in all these pleasures when he can't afford them and have this vision in his mind that somewhere he's going to get this rich girl who will let him go on living that way without paying for it.
2: Hmm. Surely his worst crime is attempting to seduce a 15-year-old.
1: Yeah, but that comes next in the letter. This is still talking about his crimes
0: before that this general life is leading which is full of idleness and dissipation (laughs) because he's not much of a drunk he's there with the officers all the time and they're all having going out to dinner parties perhaps he goes home and then they all indulge in more drinking into the morning (laughs) but something else about the letter the word principled occurs
1: in it when Darcy is talking about Wickham's vicious propensities, he talk in the letter he talks about the want of principle.
0: That's right. And then
1: later in the next chapter, Elizabeth thinks that she'd never in Darcy, when she's sort of weighing up in the balance, it says she had never seen anything that betrayed him to be unprincipled or unjust. And of course principle is a word that's gonna become so important when we start looking at Mansfield Park, which was the yes. next book she wrote. Yes. So I think
0: it's interesting that it's used in these two chapters. It would be quite interesting to just run a search for the word principle right through her. Yet I know, as you were saying that, it was making me remember the bit in Mansfield Park where Henry Crawford goes into this long panegyric about how wonderful Fanny is and... Jane Austen sort of cuts him off and says it just showed he recognised that she was high-principled and religious, which seemed to me a very flat way to describe (laughs) this lovely account he gave of her. Another thing in terms of use of words
1: is I did a word search for the book on the word prejudice and there are eight uses of it, four of which are related to Elizabeth's feelings and the first of these is in Chapter 36, again when she's reflecting on the letter, And she starts to read it with a strong prejudice against everything he might say. The only other time it's been earlier used in the book was when Elizabeth asked Darcy if he ever allowed himself to be blinded by prejudice. And then in the same chapter, after starting out with a strong prejudice against everything he might say, she realises that of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think without feeling she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. And then later on when she's talking to Jane... She says it was the most natural consequence of the prejudices I had been encouraging. And much, much later in chapter 58, when she's talking to Darcy, she talks about how gradually all her former prejudices had been removed. But I think it's, again, emphasising the central nature of these chapters and they being the the beginning of the turning point for both Darcy and Elizabeth. Suddenly we are getting a lot of use of the word prejudice.
0: Yes, Oh, well, can we move on then to a little bit more of of the saying goodbye at Rosings? No, it's really, you know, this affection I've started to get for Mr Collins. And I think it's just lovely when... (laughs) He says, my dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us. We seem to have been designed for each other. Which just, yet you know, what we were saying about Charlotte knowing how to manage yes. him. And, you know, it started making me think, oh, look, you know, he, he was a sweet man. And <laughs> the only thing we know against him is that that Elizabeth found him physically revolting. And then I thought, no, he's got that absolutely conventional moral sense and he's a clergyman and that means he's going to have a say in how people in the village are dealt with and he's going to be the one who says, turn her out, turn her out of the Which, of course, gets... is exactly what he says about Lydia later on. Yes. The death of Lydia would have been preferable to
1: this dishonour.
0: Yes, And so, you know, I can't really really feel as fond of Mr (laughs) Collins as I started to feel. I also
1: highlighted those sentences. I do think they are a real sign that Charlotte is very much managing and manipulating is perhaps too strong a word, but she is certainly... Influencing. Influencing, yes.
2: But the other side of that, and this is how I've always interpreted it as exemplifying how completely self-absorbed to the point of delusional
0: oh he's delusional
2: he he is in that he has managed to persuade himself that this is all his idea and that they genuinely are uh, soulmates rather than recognizing it for for what the reader is clearly supposed Mm, to recognize it as which is Charlotte
1: Charlotte has five times his brains oh yeah more more (laughs) yes 50 times yes in the whole Lydia going to Brighton thing, we're getting the most complete abrogation of responsibilities by Mr Bennett. Yes. He's, yeah, he's very funny and amusing about it, but at the end of the day,
0: he sent his daughter off with, how well does he really know Colonel Forster? He, he would be probably just some local gentleman who's filling in time being the colonel.
2: Well, to be a, a colonel in the militia suggests that you're relatively wealthy by the standards of the gentry, and well liked in your county, and nothing more than that.
1: But yeah, so but, he basically he's just quite happy to send his daughter, off, his particularly silly fifteen year old daughter, off to a camp full of officers, trusting to the fact that she's going to be too poor to attract any of them,
0: and, and that she's going to find her place, find yeah. that she she's not the sort of the bell of the ball that she is with uh, which is probably true but it's yes. still very no but he's basically saying oh no um i'll send her off colonel foster will keep an eye on her she'll come to a census after she's been there mm. no no i mean it, it's he he is bad doing that mm. and it is sad for poor kitty <laughs> <laughs> oh that was another thing that i noticed in this
1: talking about kitty I suddenly wondered, is Kitty actually a bit sickly? Because, you know, right at the start, she was oh, coughing. I think so. But then <laughs> also there's this bit in here where, um, you know, when they're talking about CA would set me up forever, and Kitty says, my Aunt Phillips is sure it would do me a great
0: deal of good, which again
1: suggests maybe Kitty's not a particularly healthy person. Oh, I think there's
0: other references to that earlier. Elizabeth, when she's thinking about Mr Darcy's letter, she talks about Kitty being sickly or something mm-hmm. like that. She's certainly
1: Kitty, even though she's two years older than Lydia. Um, Elizabeth emphasises that where Lydia goes, Kitty will follow. Oh, yes. though Of course, when they arrive back in Meryton with Kitty and Lydia, not only does Kitty not really have much to say in the conversation, it'd
0: be so easy to completely forget that Mariah Lucas is even there. Oh, well, yes, she's even quieter. (laughs) Another bit that I got interested in is that bit where Jane Austen has Lydia there thinking what it's going to be like and where it says she saw with the eye of creative eye of fancy the streets of that gay bathing place covered with officers. She saw herself the object of attention to tens and to scores of them at present unknown and she saw all the glories of the camp. And that struck me as that's the sort of thing that pops up quite a bit in girls' literature from then on where you have the girl... the the girl sitting there having this mad picture of herself (laughs) and of course the other
1: thing we really see after the return home is Elizabeth really seeing her family through new eyes she's always been embarrassed by them at the Netherfield Ball she was embarrassed by them but now she's seeing even more how they're perceived
0: by outsiders yes and seeing again more deeply the problems of her father's marriage yes and that that he he isn't behaving properly
1: yeah i think possibly the key sentence is elizabeth tried to be diverted by them but all sense of pleasure was lost in shame yes whereas yes. previously she has there have been times and times when in public she's been embarrassed by them But I think this is the first time she's really been unable to laugh at them and it's just lost in shame.
0: I think the other thing is, too, that previously she's been able to look at them beside people that they're not as awful as, like the Lucases and Aunt Phillips. And in a sense, her family don't seem as bad. Yeah, true. Darcy and the Bingley family have brought much higher standards to the neighbourhood. Which is the thing I've felt all along, that it must be a neighbourhood of very small gentry. They go out and visit one another, but there's nobody they need to compare themselves much with. They don't have this elegance that the Bingleys and Darcy bring into the place. Mm. Um, And then, of course, the other thing she has um, when she comes back is she
1: has to encounter Wickham again.
0: Oh, right, yes.
1: there's this bit where it says... She had even learned to detect, in the very gentleness which had at first delighted her, an affectation and a sameness to disgust and weary. So all that stuff we were talking about, about how did she not see he was a con artist, now she's starting to see all of that.
0: But only because she's got some information. She doesn't pick it up, her sort of social antenna don't pick it up from him until she's been told. Yeah. He did this. He did this. Yeah. And But then in her reflection on the letter, she starts to think over, yes, and what do
1: we know about him aside from the fact that he was the friend of Denny and he suddenly and unexpectedly just joined yes. the militia? We don't know really why. We don't know what his background is. We don't know anything about him. Yes, And then it's because he's abandoned Miss King, which of course now she's seeing for what it is. Um, yes. It was just a pursuit of fortune. and Yes, when and when Georgiana
0: showed... failed, he's pulled his sights down to Miss yeah. King. So Georgiana
1: had £30,000, Miss King only had £10,000 and she'd been thinking that that was um, showing him to be not actually all that vicious but in fact now she thinks it just shows how desperate he is. Yes. And what I love is after they have their conversation on the last night, it says they parted at last with mutual civility and possibly a mutual desire of never meeting again. Oh, is that your sentence? No, it's not. It's just a bit
0: I liked. Yes. (laughs) Okay, did you have a favourite sentence? Well, the favourite sentence I've put down here, and we mean to treat you all, added Lydia, but you must lend us the money, for we have just spent hours at the shop out there. Yes, that's... (laughs) That sentence really sums up Lydia's character completely. But for me, I sort of started to project that forward and just thinking, you know, when Lydia and Wickham are married, you can just see them turning up at Jane and Bingley and saying, Oh, you know, you gave us all that money to pay our rent for the winter, but we saw this beautiful horse that would just be right for one of their children and we knew you'd want him to have it. So, <laughs> can we have some more money? <laughs> The one I've
1: chosen, and there are quite a few good ones in this section, but the one I've chosen is just after Elizabeth has told everything to Jane about Mr. Wickham. What a stroke was this for poor Jane, who would willingly have gone through the world without believing that so much wickedness existed in the whole race of mankind, as was here collected in one individual. I just think that is such a beautiful Jane Austenism. It captures the character of Jane so well. And, of course, a couple of sentences later when... Jane is saying we shouldn't tell everyone about him. She says perhaps he has repented now and wishes to do better. (laughs) So the character we've decided to talk about this week is Lydia. It was actually difficult to find the best spot to talk about Lydia because she's in and out of the book quite a bit. In fact, you commented in one of the earlier episodes that suddenly Lydia is emerging off the page as a personality. But I thought this is probably a good place to talk about her because it's another place where she emerges. This is where we have that scene that you read the the quote from where she's going to treat them but they need to lend her money. So we really get a lot of Lydia's personality. and She, I think, speaks more and longer than in other sections. So one of the things about Lydia is, of course, she's so completely self-centred and self-absorbed. It says at one point in the chapter that... She seldom listened to anybody for more than half a minute and never attended to Mary
0: at all. Yes. But there's the other one that she's very girlish earlier on when Mr Wickham's just appeared and, oh, isn't he wonderful, but she gets drawn aside because she likes playing the game and is in competition. Forgetting her fishes, I think they yeah. called them, that's right. Having her fishes. And so, you know, she's she, I mean, she is still 15, 16. Yeah. She's really distractible. <laughs> the other bit is that funny bit where she tells about how they dressed
1: Chamberlain up in women's clothing. Yes. And the other officers were quite deceived until she messed it up by laughing so much. Yes.
0: <laughs> there were also these sort of slight indications that Wickham is turning into her favourite I mean, there's the part when she's telling Mrs. Gardner how he's interested in Miss King, and Lydia's upset by it. But you can just sort of feel that Wickham is becoming a bit more in Lydia's frame of reference. Mm.
1: And of course, she then in these sections describes Miss King as such a freckled. Yes. How, how could he care for her? Yes. Another thing I remember from years and years and years ago when I was was in high school, I went to a presentation by John Burroughs. I think it was in the very early stages of him doing his analysis of the language used in the book. Yes. And one thing I clearly remember is when he took out Lydia's speeches, she uses the word I more than practically anybody else. And he also said she uses I more than me. As in, she will always be at the start of her own sentences, the subject of her own sentences, never the object of her own sentences. Oh, right. It's one of those things that the analysis supports something you kind of feel anyway. Yeah. That all of Jane Austen's characters, or maybe not all, but certainly the significant characters of Jane Austen have their own unique way of speaking, their own unique turns of phrase. Although I think Lydia does share some with Mrs Bennet. Somewhere in the book, Mrs. Bennet says the dinner we had was 50 times better than anything at the Lucas's. Lydia could have said that. Yes, yes. Elizabeth, when she's talking to Mr. Bennet about Lydia, she is very harsh about her, probably because she's still distressed because of Mr. Darcy's letter. But she says her character will be fixed and she will at 16 be the most determined flirt that ever made herself or her family ridiculous. A flirt, too, in the worst and meanest degree of flirtation, without any attraction beyond youth and a tolerable person, and from the ignorance and emptiness of her mind, wholly unable to ward off any portion of that universal contempt which her rage for admiration will
0: excite. Oh, yes, it is, yes it's pretty awful about the sister, isn't it? Yeah. But she's nearly as harsh about Mary on occasion, mm. Elizabeth, mm. whereas Kitty is just fretful and, and sickly mm. <laughs> Yes. View. Kitty yeah. coughs and that's about it. <laughs> yes.
2: I do wonder whether contemporary readers would have been more likely to share Elizabeth's harsher interpretation of her behaviour that they'd have found it less forgivable than we do.
0: Well, I think probably very likely. But it is such a nice picture of a particular sort of 15-year-old girl who's just sort of realised come to realise that she can sort of impose herself on young men as well as on her family and the other girls mm. and that they will respond mm. and that she's discovered it. Yeah. With Lydia's personality, it bounces out of the book, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, not necessarily in a nice way. Other th- people we enjoy isn't mm. in a nice way. Yeah. We, don't, we, we don't love Lady Catherine, mm. but we, enjoy, we like <laughs> having her there. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of wonder what might have happened to Lydia if she hadn't been allowed to go to Brighton. I think she'd probably have found a younger son of some of these minor gentry that are living in that area. Because after
1: all, that's what Mrs Bennet did. And Lydia is starting at a higher plane than Mrs Bennet because she's starting as the son of a gentleman. Yes. Which Mrs Bennet wasn't. Maybe she's got sex appeal, that Elizabeth doesn't really recognise. Oh, I'm sure she has. (laughs) She must have, or Wickham wouldn't have gone off with her. Yeah, and I suppose if it had been just someone in the local gentry, she probably would have done things according to the, the standard approach of engagement, marriage, sex, rather than the other way around.
0: Or possibly engagement, sex, marriage. Well, yes.
1: But yeah, and it would have been someone probably a bit more age-appropriate.
0: Alternatively, what she could have done, it could have been with someone local. It could have been sex, engagement, marriage. Someone around her own age of the local young men, mm. particularly once the officers had gone. Yeah.
1: Would the local young men have done sex before engagement though
0: with someone of their own class with Lydia they probably would
1: (laughs) oh I'm sure given the chance but um, my question is not whether they would have had sex but whether they would have had sex with the daughter of a
0: gentleman if she was throwing herself at them I mean which is what Lydia was doing yeah there's another bit I like that when they get back home Back at Longbourn,
1: Lydia, in a voice rather louder than any other person's, was enumerating the various pleasures of the morning to anybody who would hear her. <laughs> yes, she never shuts up. Yes, she's not complaining like Mrs. Bennet, though she probably will be in
0: ten yes. or fifteen
1: or twenty years' time. Okay, so now we're going to hand over to Michael to talk about the military in Jane Austen's time.
2: Thanks, Harriet. What I thought I'd start by talking about is that, in fact, at this time, Britain has three land-based military forces. The largest of these was not actually controlled by the British government.
0: Can I guess? You
2: can guess. <laughs>
0: the East India Company's army in India.
2: Yes, the the private army of the Honourable East India Company was the largest British army during the Napoleonic Wars, it was also different from the others, and it was the only one in which officers actually were trained in their profession. But it was the least prestigious. Secondly, the one that appears most in Pride and Prejudice is, of course, the militia. The militia were a home defence force, a kind of precursor for the territorials in the UK, or the Army Reserve in Australia, or the National Guard in the United States. In terms of the military hierarchy, they were subordinate to the British Army. But from the perspective of many people in the gentry, like Mrs. Bennett, they were considered more genteel because the officers entirely came from the county gentry class. Lastly and most importantly historically is the regular army. It was the smallest of these three forces and in fact Britain's army was the smallest amongst the combatant powers during the Napoleonic Wars. It also occupied a rather ambivalent place socially during the Regency in a way that might surprise people whose experience comes based more on later 19th century literature, where it becomes much more respectable. So whilst there are a small number of regiments, the Guards, for example, most of their officers would be junior sons of the peerage. Very few members of the gentry would manage to get in there. The next step below them are are some of the cavalry regiments, which are also quite fashionable and expensive to get into and which were considered respectable and glamorous. But the overwhelming majority of line infantry regiments were not seen as a very desirable career amongst the gentry. Certainly much less desirable than the navy because there was much less opportunity for making yourself wealthy because the navy had prize money which was essentially legal piracy whereas looting in the army was illegal. So at this period most army officers were from the very lowest levels of the gentry and even from the professional classes and actually a surprisingly large number of officers in the peninsula for example even came up through the ranks. So those are the three forces. Let me talk a little bit more about the militia. The militia was always raised at the county level. And in its early history, the colonel of the regiment was responsible for raising it, for financing it, etc. Uh, In the 1790s, it was regularised by which they were paid for by the government, but they were still very much organised at the county level. So Colonel Forster would have been a wealthy landowner in the county from which this regiment came.
0: So if you think of Mr Bennett as the small landowner, long-term, Colonel Forster might have
2: had... Colonel Forster, I would say, would have been somewhere between Bingley and Darcy. And the junior officers would have been the sons of landowners. So it is actually a little bit surprising given that the militia were known to be quite genteel and more than a little bit snobbish that Wickham manages to get his way in he must have charmed his way around Colonel Forster or some other local grandee or (laughs) wanted a gambling so the fact that he appears as a officer of the militia does to some extent clothe him in more respectability on first acquaintance than would be normal for someone with of his background.
0: Henry Austin mm. joined the militia. He was yes. about 21, 22, And he sort of could come into the militia and go back to Cambridge and do some more yes. of his degree.
2: In, indeed. So it was a part-time service. When they were embodied, it would generally be for the spring and summer months, around three months a year.
1: Except in Pride and Prejudice, they're arriving for the winter months.
2: Yes, so... As the war continues, the, the, the war being being the Napoleonic Wars in general, as any real chance of invasion disappears, yeah. and as the peninsular campaign hots up, more and more even the home battalions of regular army regiments get sent to the peninsula or to India, then militia units were used to plug the gaps yeah. because it was recognized that their lack of military ability didn't really matter very much in this context. While the regular army were only volunteers, there was actually conscription into the militia. It was by ballot within the the county, all men between 18 and 50. However, if your name came up, you could pay for a substitute, and many people did. This, for example, is the reason why, although militia were nominally from a particular county. In reality, many of those serving in it are Irish or Scots because they take the bounty for the substitute and you got paid more in the militia than in the regular army. So they've become a problem because they're this large force that is costing a lot of money that can't be used for overseas service and is drawing what are regarded as the best recruits away from the regular army. So they're problematic in that way. But the other aspect that is more surprising that it doesn't appear in Jane Austen's work is that although the gentry of the county where they were serving would welcome the officers, landowners overwhelmingly did not welcome the militia arriving. They hated the regular army arriving much more, but even so, they resented it for the simple fact that barracks were only in the largest military towns. And so the common soldiers would be billeted, sometimes in public houses, but without doubt, in a smaller place like Meryton, they'd have been billeted on the local landowners. Yes. And the local landowners didn't like that. They saw them as causing discontent. Coaching. Poaching, stealing their livestock, and generally leading their own servants and staff into drunkenness and and debauchery. So it, it is perhaps a little bit surprising that there's no mention of, of that in Pride and Prejudice. We can only assume that the Bennets somehow escaped that. I think the main reason that the militia was not disbanded was that so many of its officers would have been members of Parliament. <laughs> Okay, let's talk a little bit about the regular army. So as I mentioned earlier, it's actually the smallest of the armies of the combatant powers. However, the British infantry did have the reputation as being the finest in the world. This may be for the rather surprising reason that believe it or not, the British army was the only army at the time that gave its troops live ammunition to train with. So most soldiers during the Napoleonic Wars had never fired their gun until they were on the battlefield, whereas because of their training, the British could fire three rounds a minute.
1: Later in the book, Wickham moves from the militia to the regular army when Darcy purchases an ensigncy for him. So do you want to talk about what purchase means?
2: Of course. I also think that Colonel Fitzwilliam is also without doubt an example of purchase. So purchase was this fairly extraordinary system from a modern perspective by which one could literally purchase a commission in the regular army and equally one could purchase promotion from one rank to another. Essentially, once one purchased the commission, you owned it, you could sell it. And this was an entirely official regulated system. However, whilst there was an official purchase price from one rank to the next, the system in practice did not work that way. There were very, very large premiums if you wanted to purchase a commission in a cavalry regiment, an enormous premium if you wanted to purchase one in the guards. Similarly, it would cost you more to purchase a commission in a home battalion, one stationed within Britain, as opposed to one that's going on active service. And similarly there would be very considerable discounts on commissions to certain regiments. So for example
0: The New South Wales. The Corps. New
2: South Wales a commission in the New South Wales Corps could literally not be given away. <laughs>
0: When we're looking at the purchase system, it's not all that different from what I talked about last time, which is purchasing a living, the way you're a clergyman.
2: There are some differences, but, but the, no, sa- that- the same principles very much apply. However, the consequence of this is that if you were wealthy and politically well-connected, you could use the purchase system to leapfrog from one regiment to another regiment to go up the ranks very quickly. So Arthur Wellesley who later became the Duke of Wellington purchased his way all the way up to Lieutenant Colonel which is the highest rank one can reach by purchase by the time he was 25.
1: So when you purchase it's not there are x number of officers per Battalion. So you can't just say, I want to go into that battalion. Here's my purchase money. You actually have to find someone who will, who who is leaving. And that's why they use the term selling out, because he will leave and sell his commission to someone else.
2: You have to find a vacancy, as it was called. And you have to go through official channels to purchase that commission, while at the same time engaging in unofficial negotiations with that holder for whatever premium he wants to get it. One key point to make is that battlefield casualties, disease casualties, you can't buy a dead man's commission. Those who die on the battlefield, their widows, their families can't sell their commissions. Those promotions come strictly on seniority within the battalion in which you are serving. Mm -hmm. So when a captain dies, the most senior lieutenant within his battalion then gets that captaincy Without having to pay a penny.
0: No, he has paid a penny to be a lieutenant.
2: Without having to pay another penny. <laughs> <laughs> so this brings us to one of the problems, in my view, with the novel. And that is that Darcy purchases Wickham an encency in a line regiment.
0: Rather than
1: a lieutenant, which he was in the militia. Yes.
2: He's far too old, to be honest. Well, we
1: assume it's a line regiment. It doesn't state it.
2: I think it is clear that it's a line regiment, not least because a guards regiment, a fashionable cavalry regiment, would never have accepted Wickham under any circumstances, regardless of how much money he had.
1: What is a line regiment?
2: So they are the regular army infantry. They are the place where, if you go to an overseas service battalion, then promotion can be very fast uh, because of death, mostly from disease, but also from combat casualties. However, while some seek out combat regiments because they are optimists. Wickham might think that he's lucky but no one is going to accuse him of of great courage is going to want to to be in a home battalion. Home battalions cost more to get into because...
0: Because they're home
2: battalions. Because they're home battalions. Because you're not likely to be bayoneted by a Frenchman or die of a horrible camp disease. So if we are seeking to justify what's said in the novel. We could argue that he particularly wanted to be in a home battalion and he particularly wanted to be one that is going to be perhaps stationed in a fashionable watering hole and the only vacancy available was an ensign.
1: Well can seal. we also add to that that Darcy particularly wanted him to be in a regiment that was nowhere near we... Hertfordshire and nowhere near Derbyshire.
2: That, that is also true.
1: So that, again, reduces the possibilities.
2: I've always assumed that Colonel Fitzwilliam is not unlike Arthur Wellesley, later to become the Duke of Wellington, perhaps without the political ambitions or the military genius. Arthur Wellesley was, of course, also the younger son of a peer. I think Colonel Fitzwilliam would have been the lieutenant colonel of a home battalion of a regiment of line infantry. I think the difference between Colonel Fitzwilliam and Arthur Wellesley is that while Arthur Wellesley was actively seeking an active service battalion to advance his military and more importantly his political career, I think Colonel Fitzwilliam is much more content to have a home battalion without the risk, but allowing him the comfortable lifestyle that allows him to spend most of his time on the social niceties and without the dangers of being killed so i also wanted to raise what i feel is one of the most striking almost shocking insights that jane austen's novels provide us which is they show us just how disengaged england's gentry class were from the massive global conflict their country was engaged in it at the time one would almost not know that a war was going on mm. if if one's only record were jane austen's novels. She's not an exception to this. She she is very much part of how the gentry looked on it at the time. Britain's key role in at least the land wars of, of the Napoleonic era was not so much in providing armies themselves, but paying for the armies of other combatant powers. The gentry during this Regency period were much less likely to joined the armed forces particularly the army in this period than they were in later periods and I thought I'd I'd conclude just by having us consider how different Darcy and Bingley would appear to be if the novel was set a century later during the first world war because here we have two essentially idle young men of no profession with no apparent interest in serving their country they would without doubt be social pariahs. And I think it's safe to say that Mary Bennett would be the first one in line to give each of them a white feather.
1: (laughs) Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the pop culture versions of Pride and Prejudice. As we said earlier, these two chapters are very text-dense, And completely engaging and engrossing to read, but very, very difficult to dramatise. So they've taken different approaches to it. In the 1980 miniseries, the Elizabeth Garvey and David Rintoul, the letter has Elizabeth reading it aloud in her head and occasionally you get little little, little flashbacks, some I think from what you've seen, but also some from Darcy's past life with Wickham. And that is then followed by a very lengthy voiceover of Elizabeth describing her feelings. And this, again, is one of those things that I feel doesn't work all that well in the miniseries of trying to put into the mouth of a character the words that Jane Austen has put on the page. In this instance, I'm not sure they're really using Jane Austen's description of Elizabeth's thought processes, but you are getting this very, very descriptive tell rather than show to the audience and the other interesting thing and I noticed this with the proposal as well it's quite dispassionate there's not a lot of emotion in either Elizabeth or Darcy in these scenes even when Elizabeth is berating herself it's still very very controlled by contrast the 1995 version with Colin Firth and Jennifer Ely has much more emotion to it and they take quite a different approach to the letter for a start they split it What you see first is Colin Firth striding back to Lady Catherine's place and interspersed with that and with Elizabeth's ongoing reaction, you have some flashbacks to the previous episode to remind you what's just happened. (laughs) Uh, But also to, I think, to emphasise Darcy's thought processes at this time, because, of course, this is not something we see at all in the book. We don't see
0: Darcy writing the letter. We don't see any of Darcy's change of heart, really. Well, didn't we say earlier that, in fact, we don't see inside Darcy's mind after he's handed the letter over? No. We see, we see what he's thinking right up to there. No,
1: we actually we stop seeing what he's thinking at the Netherfield Ball. We, yeah, ne- well that's we never of... see what he's thinking at any time when he's staying with Lady Catherine de Bourgh. We... We assume that he's in a highly emotional frame of mind leading up to writing the
0: letter, but that's an assumption, not one we see. Yes, it's, it's pretty much embedded in the text. Yes. And, of course, Charlotte is noticing it. Yes, it's
1: embedded, but it's not explicit. We don't get in his head. So what it does then is it shows you Darcy writing the letter, and they've made the decision to flip around the order of the letter. So what you see is... Darcy writing the first part of the letter which is now the story of Wickham. And oh. it's all in Darcy's voiceover. You have shots of Colin Firth Writing the letter, but you also have flashbacks of Wickham at Cambridge. You have harking back to what you said earlier about what Wickham has been doing. You have Darcy walking in on Wickham's room, and he's sitting there with what is probably a serving girl on his knee, yeah, (laughs) showing yeah, showing him being disolute in a
2: in a room right off the main quad, which (laughs) seems rather improbable.
1: Yes, they have to show that it's Cambridge, and you have that happening. Darcy writing through the night, so it's a mix of voiceover but the visuals you get are a combination of the flashbacks that you haven't seen before and Colin Firth looking quite romantic as he's doing the writing which again is not particularly subtle but I've said before subtlety is not Andrew Davis thing but at the same time it is showing rather than telling unlike the 1980s version and then Elizabeth starts reading it and it's her voiceover interjected every now and then with her um, editorialising on it like um <laughs> oh, really surprise me <laughs> and you know huffing and puffing occasionally with indignation as she tells the story of Jane but that is interspersed again with flashbacks of what we have seen earlier and I'm sure I have either read an interview with Andrew Davis or seen on a documentary but I could not find it anywhere that they said with those flashbacks they used the scenes that were shot earlier of Netherfield and what have you but they heightened everything they I think they they heightened the contrast they made it louder so in Elizabeth's recollection her family are almost worse than they were at the time though I said at the time they they emphasize her embarrassment anyway with the background music so that's how they've chosen to dramatize it it's all show don't tell you see so much through the facial expressions of Elizabeth and of Darcy to see what they're thinking. So you don't, in the end, have that voiceover that the 1980s felt compelled to have because you see it much better. Oh, well, that, yes. I I felt that was much more successful. Then in the the 2005 film with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadgen, in that, you don't have Elizabeth going out walking and Darcy giving her the letter. You have Elizabeth sitting in her room at Hunter Parsonage and Darcy kind of creeping up behind her like a stalker (laughs) and giving her the letter without saying anything. She doesn't turn around. It's kind of hard to work out how much of this is what's really happening and how much is in her head because he then just kind of disappears darcy
2: isn't a stalker he's a vampire yes he he appears in her room leaves the letter and then disappears yes
1: there's no eye contact at all it's almost a question of is this kind of semi-fantasy and does she in fact just arrive back in her room and the letter's there or has he really snuck up behind her very strange and some of the material from the letter all his defense about jane and bingley that is actually moved from the letter into the proposal scene so that's how they dramatise that half of the letter. Yeah. And with the other half of the letter, the story of Wickham, they cut it down to about five sentences. Obviously, as a movie, they have to have a much more compressed version oh, of the frame, script. Yes. So they don't get anywhere near as much of Darcy's words there. I think they do a reasonably successful method of getting the key points across. But as I said, in this kind of creepy um, presentation, mm-hmm. <laughs> In Bride and Prejudice, the Bollywood version, they deal with the letter by not having it. It's all included in the Declaration of Love scene. It's not a proposal. And in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, which is the web series, the modernised one, because the background of that is this is not a camera filming what's happening. This is actually a video blog that she is presenting to the internet. So you have Darcy arriving and giving her the letter And then you see her saying well of course I'm not going to read it and then she picks it up and she starts to read it and then she reads more reading it to herself not aloud. and then she the episode finishes and then the next episode starts and she's talking about all sorts of other things and then Charlotte says everyone wants to know what was in the letter and she says well I can't tell you because it's private and I know I've told a lot of other stuff on this blog but I can't tell this. So you actually don't see any of the defence of Darcy against Wickham at that point. Though she does say, but I'll tell you one thing that wasn't in the letter. There was no apology for breaking up Jane and Bingley. So you don't actually have any of that there. What you have a few episodes later, after she's gone back home and she's with Jane, she tells the Wickham throwing away all the money. Yes. Which is transposed into a modern setting that. Darcy was supposed to be paying Wickham's tuition and Wickham said don't pay the university just give it all to me at once and so he was given three years worth of tuition money and he blew it all in a year and then wanted more but there's no mention at that stage of anything else she has said earlier she's not going to tell it because it involves people she's never met but in that version of the story you don't get it then much later when Georgiana Darcy actually appears you have Georgiana telling the story herself. So that's how they deal with this combination situation yes. of reading a letter is boring, and also reading this very personal letter doesn't fit with the concept of, I am telling this to the internet. Something else I wanted to talk about is the presentation of Lydia in Lizzie Bennett Diaries. Because most of the adaptations of the book, the period ones, they have a fairly similar approach to Lydia, which is pretty much what you see in the book. Inevitably, she's too old. In the 1995 version, she was played by Julia Sawalha, who I love as an actress, and who I thought did a wonderful capturing of Lydia's essence, except that she was... I looked it up. She was 27 at the time. So just a... It sometimes... She was behaving like a 15-year-old and clearly not being a 15-year-old, which is a bit unfortunate, but that's more or less how they all present Lydia. She's boisterous, she's bold, she's out there, she's an embarrassment to everyone, she's completely unrepentant, and that is reasonably a reflection of Lydia in the book. In the Lizzie Bennett Diaries, they do a complete rethinking of Lydia. What they do is Lydia starts out being not that dissimilar. In fact, she's profoundly irritating. She's out there. She's bouncy. She's boisterous, as I said, everything like that. But as the show goes on, you start to see some cracks appearing and you realise actually underneath this she's a very insecure person. So at the time when Jane has gone off to... London. uh, (laughs) Jane has gone off to L.A. rather than London. All right, And Elizabeth has gone to Collins and Collins, which I forget where that is, but um, (laughs) also not home. Lydia has been spending time with... Cousin Mary, who's been helping her study. Kitty in this is a kitten, not a person. <laughs> and and Mary is their goth cousin, who is also not at all like Mary in the book. And I absolutely love Mary and Elizabeth in diaries. But so Lydia's gone off with Mary and Mary has is being friendly with her. But at one point she just suddenly snaps and she just runs away and goes and spends some time with Jane in LA. And you kind of get this sense that she needs validation from her sister. She's actually a very needy person. Uh-huh. And what then happens is on her 21st birthday, she suddenly cotton's onto the fact that Elizabeth does actually want her to grow up a bit, doesn't just celebrate her the way she is, and she is really angry with Elizabeth, and she runs off to Las Vegas for a holiday, which is where she meets up with Wickham, you learn afterwards. But what then happens is you see a lot of videos, she makes herself separately from Lizzie's videos, and that develops the relationship with Wickham it is an emotionally abusive relationship. You see Lydia going from being out there bouncy and profoundly irritating and you sometimes want to beat her head against a wall to being withdrawn and damaged and honestly, some people I saw in the comments were actually saying you should be putting trigger warnings on these videos. Oh. It was, I thought, a really... They obviously decided they couldn't have the Lydia story play out the way it does in the book because that doesn't work for the 20th century. They worked out an alternative thing they wanted and to make that happen they have made Lydia into a completely different I won't say more nuanced character because she is as we've said very well developed in the book but a completely different character and I think a very interesting one but so completely different from the book and completely not what I was expecting when I first started watching it I thought it was
0: fascinating yes
2: can I go back to the 1995 yes I thought you were very generous in your your analysis of the 1995. I think those things in the 1995 encapsulate everything I hate about the 1995 <laughs> in that it is Darcy as larger romantic hero turned up to 11. We have Darcy looking mournful. Scenes that I think is Colin Firth looking like he has indigestion. But clearly about this continuous thread in the Andrew Davies one of turning him into a larger romantic hero in the way that is alien to Jane Austen.
1: I don't entirely agree with that. Yes, that is not subtle, those scenes. But I think that is about trying to find the right balance between telling and showing. And Darcy is such a buttoned-up character. He Mm. had to have something come out to show emotional turmoil and to show the beginnings of change and growth, which you don't see in the book. And you're also not going to see a lot of here, because I believe in between this scene and Pemberley, there Mm. are one or two scenes you see of him in London, but not much else. So he's got these short chunks when he has to show the beginnings of growth. But like I said, I I absolutely take your point that it is exaggerated. And I absolutely take your point that it is not, not the way Jane Austen would have written it, because we saw the way Jane Austen wrote it, and it was in this syntactically complex very very thorough detailed letter yes which would not have worked on the screen
2: yeah so I actually think that the 1980 is more faithful to the book the problem is though that in being more faithful to the book it no doubt leaves a good many in the modern audience saying why is he so cold why is he so rational Mm. Why isn't he being the large R romantic hero that we expect?
1: Mm. I would argue that until that scene, until the writing of the letter scene in nineteen ninety five, you don't see Darcy as large romantic. You mostly see him as basically not a nice person.
2: <laughs> i I disagree, but I think consistently throughout the nineteen ninety five Darcy is portrayed as actually worse than large romantic, as a Mills and Boone hero. We have Darcy galloping around on horses for for no readily apparent reason we have darcy fencing which he
1: well we haven't had that yet
2: yes but but engaging in all kinds of activities that darcy doesn't do in the book and and jane austen would never have her heroes doing precisely in order to make him more of a conventional romantic hero Mm.
1: you see i think much of that except for the galloping around on horseback all of that happens in the second half
2: that's when the jumping in the pond occurs yes
1: (laughs) and i will be talking about that One other thing I wanted to to say briefly is when Elizabeth is thinking about the letter, one of the things she thinks is that she had often heard him, as in Darcy, speak so affectionately of his sister as to prove him capable of some amiable feeling. Now in the book Mr Darcy's Diary written by Amanda Grange, as distinct from another book also called Mr Darcy's Diary that I haven't read, one of the things that comes through in that is his affection for Georgiana. That diary starts well before the book begins it starts before the whole landscape thing and scattered throughout it is Georgiana writes that she's learning a new sonata on the piano Georgiana has done this Georgiana has done that I have bought this for Georgiana this affection Darcy has for Georgiana I think the author has really picked up on that simple sentence in the book and a few other things later and really scattered it throughout and really really brought out this affection between brother and sister which I think is really nice Michael has been watching with me not all but some of the excerpts from the various adaptations and he has lots of thoughts about the military uniforms used in these productions
2: (laughs) so the short version is they're all unbelievably dreadful most dreadful is the 1940 where Wickham and the militia appear to be wearing some kind of Ruritanian band uniform (laughs) And it quite bizarrely has Colonel Fitzwilliam in a kilt. The most historically accurate is the 1980. However, it's guilty of what they all are. And that is completely historically inaccurate in that whenever one sees a character from the militia, they're always in full parade uniform. (laughs) Militia officers would have relatively seldom worn their uniforms. They would certainly have not walked around the streets in their parade uniforms with their sabres, with their epaulettes, wearing their shakos, their It's all about the difference between what people think and expect of an historical period versus actual historical practice. So I can entirely see why they do it, but it's nonetheless inaccurate.
1: <laughs> You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen, with
0: me, Harriet, and me, Ellen,
2: and me, Michael.
0: In our next episode, we'll be doing chapters 42 to 46 of Pride and Prejudice.
1: The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarize in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music
0: is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen, and our website, readingjaneausten.com.
1: You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time.